This is the Santita Jackson Show.
because um, there are very few states where everybody is not present. So call me at 773-763-9278. And we're going to see if we can get John Nicholson, who is in Iceland this morning. And so we got a lot to talk about on the Sam Peter Jackson Show in Chicago. It's going to be positively balmy, contrasting with what we had last week. 46 degrees, almost 50 degrees, mostly cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 35 degrees. Partly cloudy. In the NBA, the Bulls 128, the Spurs 104, the Timberwolves will be facing off against the Nuggets tonight. The Ducks will be playing Chicago in the NHL, and the Coyotes have they bested the Wild just by one puck, three to two, everybody. Super Bowl weekend has begun. Everybody, who you got? Let me know what you think. I want to hear that, too. I mean, it's going to be a historic Super Bowl. Two black quarterbacks will be facing off against each other. It's never happened in the history of the Super Bowl. Not that blacks were not qualified. They just never got the opportunity. So good luck to Mr. Hertz and Mr. Mahomes that you've got two brothers on opposite teams. The mama brought cookies to the Super Bowl week kickoff to both of her babies. And, oh, boy, it's just it's always great. And it's going to be a great Super Bowl halftime show or Oh, well, they look like that crazy devil worship stuff they've been doing with late. Yeah, I put it out there. It looks crazy. Goodness gracious. Anyway, call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. President Joe Biden tonight will deliver his State of the Union address to the American people. It will be at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. So those of us who are in Minneapolis and in Chicago, 8 o'clock, tune in, everybody. It's a tradition rooted in the U.S. Constitution following 98 previous in-person annual messages since George Washington's first one was delivered in 1790. This will be President Biden's second State of the Union address. His first in a in a completely divided Congress, and many people feel that he will remind lawmakers and the nation of his accomplishments. And this might be the kickoff to the 2024 campaign for him. More than 5,000 people have been killed and tens of thousands injured after a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck Turkey and. Syria on Monday. This massive rescue effort that's coming in from all over the world is underway, and aid agencies are particularly worried about northwestern Syria, where more than four million people were already relying on humanitarian assistance. That country is, has been attacked uh, from without for decades, everybody. The international community has been quick to offer assistance and, um, and you know, reach out to the Red Cross, everybody. The United States, Japan, India, Pakistan, and other countries have committed to assist with rescue crews. But they need rescue crews and they need money. God bless them. Residents of East Palestine, Ohio, that's how they pronounce it, are still unable to return to their homes after a train derailment four days ago sparked a massive fire and prompted widespread evacuations. The train crashed Friday while carrying hazardous materials, causing uh, continuous burning, everybody. Five of the derailed train cars were carrying vinyl chloride, a chemical that is unstable and threatened an explosion. God bless everybody, but they should not even be around there to inhale those fumes. But think of the firefighters who are there. They're the ones who have to walk into that. God bless them and their families. And those are just some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. But we are very blessed to have... Pastor Stephen Thurston of the New Covenant Missionary Baptist Church, the recently retired pastor of the Salem Baptist Church, the greatest little church in the world. 
And of course, he's the author of Mirror Moments. He switched his Facebook dialogue, everybody, uh, from today to Fridays. Am I not right, Pastor? That's right. Fridays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Okay, all right, all right, all right. I just want to get it right. I want to get it right. It's wonderful hearing your voice this morning. You know, I'm going to have to get you on one of these political panels. And, you know, everyone, I want to remind folks that we are going to be at um, Pastor Corey Brooks Church, the rooftop pastor, our dear friend, uh, Pastor Thurston. It's at 67th and Cottage Grove, uh, New Beginnings Church at 10 a.m. on Saturday. It will be a mayoral forum. Everybody, I think, except the mayor has confirmed that they're going to be there. And uh, hopefully she'll confirm by the end of the week. It is going to be um, a people's forum. The questions that you will not hear um, asked and the answers that we will press for. And when I say not he- you will not hear these questions, you know, it's just corporate media has their own slant. And the people have ours. And so I want you to give us some of the good news, Pastor Thurston. Let's do it, Santita. Listen, the good news today is that you can care about other just people. A little, without just a little muffled, Pastor. Pastor, you just, are you on the earpiece? No. Okay. Oh, okay, because you were sounding just a little muffled, and I just want to make sure we can hear every word. Sure thing. Is this better? That's much better. Yes, sir. Awesome. Cool. I was saying that we can we can care for people without carrying all of their pain and their burdens. Uh, listen, when people we care about suffer, it can be hard not to get swept up into their pain. And the reality is that we so often want to desperately fix them, uh, to take away their hardship, and to see them flourishing. And for those of us who are admitted control freaks, come on, let's be honest about who we are. We shift right into fixer mode. We know that we care about are struggling, and then we get anxious when nothing we suggest works, and they get more frustrated because we're so preoccupied with their issues. What's helped me? with my frantic attempts at control is that little voice inside that tells me to stop, to listen, to be there for them without trying to change them or anything with the circumstance, uh, to witness their pain and to sit next to them while they feel it. And what I had to come to grips with was that it's not my job to fix other people's problems. It's my job to be there for them with love as they figure out how to handle their own suffering. And with this realization, I was freed from feeling the responsibility of taking on their pay. And because I get that this might be difficult, a difficult shift for some of you who really care for people, it could be a difficult shift to make in your mind and in your actions. Let me share just four tips with you on how to not get overwhelmed when others are suffering. Number one, I want you to realize that being supportive doesn't mean fixing people's problems. One way we can be supportive of others is to practice listening without the intent to respond with solutions. Consider what that would be like if we simply held space for others without needing to respond all the time. I attended a workshop once where we partnered up with the strangers in Tita and we took turns sharing our struggles. The one not speaking had to simply listen and was not allowed to respond at all. So we practiced listening with our whole bodies, with our hearts, with our minds, released from the need to think of something to say in return. Instead, we got to be a loving witness to this person's experience. And sometimes all that our loved ones need is to be seen 
and to know that someone is there for them. Number two, allow them to find their own way. And again, this can be hard. It's hard to let people go through situations and circumstances without you putting on your Superman or your Superwoman cape and jumping right in. Listen, imagine if your family or your partner had stepped in during every rough patch in your life that you encountered. You would not have learned your own strength. You would not have been so amazingly transformed and matured by your experiences. Those we care about, they don't need someone to take away their pain. They need someone to be there with love and patience as they experience their pain. Can we offer loving suggestions? Yes. Can we help them in productive ways? Of course. But at the end of the day, it is their lesson to learn, and we have to practice letting go of the outcome. Eventually, you'll have to realize that this is their journey and their pain, not yours. And as much as you may want to, you don't have to take that on. And guess what? It actually doesn't help anyone or anything for us to carry around pain that really isn't ours. Number three, realize that you're only responsible for yourself. You can't control other people. You can't control who suffers and who doesn't in life. And what a burden that would be if we felt we needed to safeguard everybody in our life from pain. That would be so overwhelming. Listen, you're responsible for yourself. So here's the question you have to ask. How can you take better care of yourself as you're caring for other people? If there's someone in your life who's going through a rough time, you have to respect your own limits. You have to set boundaries and know how much you can safely and lovingly give to people. Giving to others when we're depleted ourselves doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve them. And listen, it can ultimately do some harm. So instead, find ways that you can care and respect for yourself so that you can be available as a support system in a way that feels appropriate and safe for both you and the other person. And then fourth and finally, I want you to practice grounding back into your own body and energy field on a, on a regular basis. When we're caring for other people, we may have a tendency to take on their energy. It's like when we're around angry people. Even if we're not angry ourselves, we may feel our hearts our hearts quicken or our breathing becomes shallow or our temperature starts to rise. I want you to practice grounding back into your own body so that you can recognize what's yours and what's not. It can be very difficult to separate ourselves from others and to let go of needing to take, take away our loved one's pain. And sometimes I still struggle with that, but I'm learning every day that I am not responsible for everybody else's pain. I can be there with love and kindness, but beyond that, it's really out of my control. All I can control is how well I care for myself so that my love can then ripple out in support of others. You can care without carrying everybody's pain. I love it, love it, love it, love it, and that is so true. You know, self-care is so important. It is so important. And you want me to pivot to Dr. Knighton because she was talking about on Hey, Dr. Nina, Hey, Dr. Nina, the importance of mental health, Pastor, mental health, and really you always pivot to that. I've got three or four minutes. Talk to me about the importance of having that mental hygiene, uh, Dr. Shanita Knighton. That's something that many of us, well, like, you know, we just live with so much stress every day and so much unwellness in our minds. Why is that important? Absolutely. So I was going to say this was actually right in tandem with, honestly, like Pastor was right in tandem with where I'm at. 
um, just in regards to really us remembering to be our own oxygen mask, our own, you know, thought leader when it comes to our mental health first. Um, simply because if that's not intact, then how you think through other aspects of your life to be safe. So when you talk about mental hygiene and you talk about, let's say, being in the right mind, right? So knowing that you are in the correct state of mind to make decisions as it comes to your health. Typically, when people do not eat correctly, um, it's because they're stressed. It's because something is going on in life that is throwing them off. And I know we've all been there where we say, oh, my gosh, my eating was off last week or my eating has been off this week. And it's because mentally we're not taking care of ourselves to be mindful about our activities. When we have those slip-ups and let's say we are not thinking through, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the one time that I did not wear a mask, you know, while I was in a crowded space or the time that I did not practice hand hygiene after touching elevator buttons, it's us not being in a mental space to be mindful about the activities for which we are doing. And unfortunately, us not having the best mental health because we are in a stress situation sometimes can have detrimental consequences. Um, some of them, you know, when think about people that are driving and car accidents happen and people might take the life of another or injure someone else or themselves, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, like I just wasn't paying attention or something happened. It's us not having a mental clarity at that moment to really focus. And so sometimes it does take us to take the seat back, to be able to reflect and say, how can I be intentional about my mental health so I can be best for everyone else that is around me? I always remind individuals of that when they are stressed out because a loved one is sick or a loved one is not in their best state. I say you cannot be your best self for them and assist them if you are not in your best state. So sometimes we just have to remember to be our own oxygen mask first. And it may not necessarily mean the physical part. It could mean the mental part of making sure that we are taking care of our own mental health so that way we can be there for others. All right, everybody. Look, take good care of yourself. I am Santita Jackson. It's a joy, joy to be with you today on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about the DNC changing, moving from Iowa and New Hampshire to South Carolina and Nevada. Many people feel that maybe they're abandoning the white vote. No, or are they including the Hispanic and the black vote? Hmm. Well, they have a greater say in who the nominee is. Will it make it? More fair, more representative of where America is. Everybody is here, everybody. Back with more. I'm saying Chief Jackson for just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Morning stars, never fear. I kept working curiously. Thank you, thank you. So I could get up on the air and be with you today. We're talking about the switch in the schedule of the of the DNC's presidential primary contest. What do you think about that? Call me at 773-763-9278. 
Of course, Iowa and New Hampshire are upset. But people feel that the black primary, the so-called black primary, 60% of the Democratic vote in the South Carolina primary is black. But the backbone of the Democratic Party is black. If the Democrats lose a black vote, they can never get the White House. They can't get anything. So there's that. And then you've got a surging Hispanic vote in Nevada. Hmm. So should we still stay with Punxsutawney Phil, if you will, um, or do we need to expand, expand? Remember, the first primary contest has not always been in the contest has not always been in New Hampshire and Iowa. It's a tradition that's about two generations old. Is it now, now time to change? I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPP. And I hope you will join Rainbow Push. And ABC will be streaming this and we'll be doing um, something else. I mistakenly said it was NBC, but it's ABC. Uh, and we will also be on the air with them on uh, March 16th. That having been said, we have a mayoral forum. It will be the People's Forum. Uh, corporate media will not be shaping the questions you will, we will. We'll be asking the questions that need to be answered. Uh, you know, the questions that you want to have asked, and we're going to press for the answers. And so, please. I want to see you at New Beginning Church, Pastor Corey Brooks Church, uh, between 66th and 67th on Cottage Grove. You don't want to miss it. It is going to be great. For more information, call 773-FREEDOM or go to rainbowpush.org. <sighs> Mouthful. Hey, Shapiro, you've got a big event at the beginning of March. I do, Santita, and thank you so much for having us on. At the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation, we are having our annual gala that's going to be March 3rd, 2023 at the JLM Community Center. You could actually purchase tickets at www.copelandmemorial.com, www.copelandmemorial.com. And if you can't attend, please consider donating a ticket for a mother who has lost a child. We do honor the mothers at the banquet annually. So we're asking everyone, if you can't make it personally, to donate a ticket. So please visit www.copelandmemorial.com. Thank you so much, Santita. And this is a scholarship fund? Yes. All money raised is uh, for our scholarship, college scholarship uh, grants that we give away in August. So please help us to send these kids to college. Okay. So who are you finding you're sending to college? Is it, is it poor white kids? Is it black kids? Is it Hispanic kids? Who are you sending? We sent it at all. Uh, last year, we, we were able to give away three college, college scholarships, and we, we had a black, a Latino, and an uh, Asian. So okay, we, that's everybody who applies to the program was able to uh, receive that grant. Okay, well, that is fantastic, everybody. Please, you need your, they need your support, everybody. What's the website very quickly? www.copelandmemorial.com. All right, all right, everybody. That is March 3rd. Yes. All right. All right, everybody. Please get on out there and support Super Bowl. Of course, you can go to Celebrations by Us for, uh, for the Super Bowl, uh, 708-526-4546. But this 
they need your special support and don't have a lot of time to get a lot done. So please go on and go to HopefulMemorial.com. Everybody, let's talk about what's happening in the DNC. I mean, President Biden got has got everybody all shook up in the next hour. We will be at the bottom of the next hour. We'll be talking with John Nichols from The Nation magazine from Iceland, who will be talking to us about the State of the Union address, which is tonight. Boy, but in the meantime, I have got South Carolinian, South Carolina's favorite daughter, Attorney Janice Mathis, who is also director of the Vaunted, really the most esteemed and oldest black women's organization um, in the country. We just think of Jeanette Cole, Dr. Janetta Cole, the former uh, president of Selman, and of course, the iconic Dorothy Height, and now you, and you are in the space where you need to be Attorney Janice Mathis. But you're from South Carolina, we've got Attorney Daryl Jones, Chairman of the Transformative Justice Coalition, of course, at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, 11 o'clock Central Standard Time. He and Barbara Arnwine will be on their show on WOL in Washington, D.C. You don't want to miss that. And, of course, they stream on BarbaraArnwine.com. But, of course, sisters-in-law, you and my big sis, have a radio show, too. Before we get into that and before we get into what's happening with this contest, how can we hear you on the radio on the Salem Broadcasting Network, Attorney Mathis? Oh, Attorney Mathis, are you there? What? All this that I did? Well, let me go to a, let me go to you, Attorney Jones. What do you make of this change in the? Uh, oh, is she? Are you okay? Uh, what do you make of this change in the in the schedule? I mean, a lot of people are very upset about this, and you have Republicans and Democrats who are uniting in Iowa and in New Hampshire, and they're saying absolutely not. We are going to be the first. We're going to be the first. We're going to be the first that they stomp their feet. What do you think about that? Oh, anyway. So, you know, we're going to find out what's going on. But what do you think, everybody? Call me at 773-763-9278-773-763-WCPT. 773-763-763-WCPT. I want to know what your thoughts are today about this. I think it's a really great idea. I really, really do. I think it's very important that we move with the times. But, you know, uh, that's not happening. Kevin Lampy, are you there? Good morning, Santita. How are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. Kevin, you're going to be, you and Kitty Kurth are going to be in Wisconsin today with President Biden before, oh, is that tomorrow? Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Tonight's the State of the Union, and um, and tomorrow the uh, president's going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. About this, uh, you know, I mean, many people think that that New Hampshire and Iowa have always been first, and that is not so. That's just happened over the past 50 years or so, right? I mean, and so now uh, they're saying, okay, we need to make yet another shift. Uh, you had small town America that was celebrated by going, and, and the farmland that was, that was, uh, that was, you know, they were elevated by having these, the primaries first, right? And now it's something a little bit, different. I mean, the so-called black primary and the so-called, um, and, and really the, the surging Hispanic population. Do you think this is a good idea to make this shift? 
I, I absolutely think it's a good idea. I have worked on uh, presidential politics and, and uh, worked. Um, Kitty and I have, 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 you know, worked in New Hampshire. We've worked in, uh, in Iowa. Uh, and then in other primary states after then. And the, the shift is, is important because that reflects the, the changing demographic of this country. Um, as this country becomes, you know, um, more and more diverse and with larger populations growing, larger demographic populations growing for the Democratic Party, our party is a growing party. The Republican Party is a stagnant party. The party that's living in the past, the Democrats are living in the future. And this is a much better with um, with North Carolina uh, being up there with Nevada moving up. These are all things that reflect a a what America really looks like now. It says, as, for instance, even when you know both Biden and, and Obama, Obama wanted to have cabinets that look more like America. We are going to have a primary system that looks more like America. Mm, call us at 773-763-9278 and let us know what you think. What do you what do you make of these um, of the states that want to? I mean, they, Democrats and Republicans are uniting in New Hampshire and in um, and in Iowa, and they're saying no. We want to stay. We want to remain first, and which shapes the campaign, Kevin. You know, whoever wins there, they're automatically the front runner, and they carry that with them through the rest of the campaign. Most, most definitely. But you know, sometimes that front runner doesn't turn out to be the nominee. I mean, my my favorite example is is going back. Um, to um, um, when uh, Bill Clinton's uh, first uh, primary uh, victory in uh, 1992 was not New Hampshire. It was Paul Songus who won that primary. But Bill Clinton went out there the election night and declared, "I'm the comeback kid. I went from nothing to something, and and now my now my campaign is moving forward." When in fact he didn't even win the the, the uh, New Hampshire primary. So. It's going to be a better test the candidates' organizational skills uh, to reach out to many more voters in, you know, in South Carolina, because these things make make a difference here. You know, I've got Attorney Janice Mathis on. Janice, I gave you the, I mean, the introduction from heaven, but you are the executive director of the National of Negro Women, this iconic organization, indeed. Uh, we thank God for the iconic Dorothy Hyde and Dr. Janetta Cole, the former president of Spelman College, for all the work that all of you do in that all, and I include myself, in the National Council of Negro Women. That having been said, um, you're a native South Carolinian. Of course, uh, your father was my father's mentor. I mean, there was, I mean, uh, there's no one that my father admired more, and there's no one who helped him more to really to, to grow from being a boy to becoming a man. We thank God for Coach Mathis today. My father does not a day that he does not talk about your dad. Um, but you're South Carolinian. And, oh, you know, those are he gets to more memories he summons. Uh, that having been said, I want, and I thank you for that, for embracing my father as a family as he searched for one. Um you know, but what about this pushback against South Carolina and Nevada with this surging Hispanic population becoming the first in the nation? You know the first two primaries shaped the campaign. You, I mean, you might not always be the nominee, but it, you, you, if you win Iowa and New Hampshire, I mean, it, it was a game changer. 
for then Senator Obama. It could be the game changer for you, but you certainly carry with you the patina of being the front runner if you win or if you finish strongly. You know, people they take you seriously. Um, what about South Carolina? I mean, you you can't win without the black vote. And you can't win without this vote, but you absolutely can't win without the black vote. I mean, the Democrats have to have a strong black vote in order to win. Absolutely, Santita. Thank you for that generous introduction, and good morning to your guests and to your audience. Uh, this is a topic that is close to my heart. Let me just quickly say that South Carolina should be near the front of the pack. It makes sense. And the reason it makes sense is there's two glaring recent examples. Barack Obama was doing so-so in the primaries and caucus states as he went around the country. It wasn't until he went to South Carolina and Bill Clinton said something crazy like, oh, what South Carolina, even Jesse Jackson could win. South Carolina said some ugly remark. It made South Carolinians livid. And they began to prepare. Barack Obama didn't have um, the majority of even black support at that point. But South Carolina was pivotal in changing that mindset. The other time was... You mustn't forget, it was Hillary Clinton who had the majority of the black vote because she had the relationship. And the relationship, right? The black caucus, the congressional black caucus had not endorsed Barack Obama. But it was the people of South Carolina, black folk in South Carolina, reacting to Bill Clinton's insensitive remark that really got him noticed and appreciated by black by black voters and that the, the rest of history. The other time was Joe Biden had a South Carolina story too. Um he wasn't doing very much. He was sort of at the back of the pack. His campaign was almost dead until he went to South Carolina. And what happened? Something very similar. Black folks said, you know what? Black women are so pragmatic as voters. Now Jim Clyburn gets a lot of the credit for this because he endorsed Joe Biden in South Carolina. Uh, he's the, the um, leader of the Democratic Party in South Carolina and across the nation. But it was black women who said, we want a candidate who can go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump. And to, to black women, that seemed more practical that that would be uh, a Joe Biden who could speak to those Southerners, speak to those people in Western Pennsylvania. It changed his campaign and his outlook. So I'm not surprised that President Biden was strongly behind this push to move South Carolina up in the um, primary calendar because he benefited from it. And, you know, give credit where credit is due. He understands and said in a letter to the DNC, the backbone of the Democratic Party is the black vote, and we need to stop taking them for granted. Could have been more clear. And then the final point I want to make is, what about your dad? It was he who changed the proportional allocation of votes in the primary process that made Barack Obama possible, and to a large extent, made Joe Biden possible. So the rules matter. And I want to thank you and your family for all the sacrifices and contributions you all have made to making this country a little bit fairer, a little bit more just, a little bit more living up to its creed. Well, you know, we did it all together. 
I mean, now, it's not like you were not involved in those campaigns and everybody thought you were crazy to do so. <laughs> so, you know, we all did this together. We all did this together. And that's and that's what's very important. You know, I mean, we cannot say enough about Kevin Gray, um, who was yes. who managed those campaigns and who was on the ground. And after Reverend surprised, did so surprisingly well in the South in 1984, I mean, he they stopped counting when he was winning Mississippi. So they called it a draw, remember, between uh, Reverend Jackson and, and Vice President Mondale. And then he also... The same thing happened in South Carolina. Kevin said, we can win this outright going away in a landslide if I start registering voters right now. So the day after the primary in 1984, he started organizing. He was organizing all over the country, but he assiduously and purposely and purposefully started registering voters in 1984 and you won um South Carolina going away, and no candidate, no one who becomes a nominee can win, uh, can win without South Carolina. I mean, I don't think that the corporate media is saying that enough. Robert Pacello, what are your thoughts about this? Thank you so much, Santita and Janice and everyone else on uh, uh, on this morning. Uh, this was a crucial move, primarily because it shows the demographic shift that we're seeing nationwide uh, with regards to the electorate. Um, um, the Democratic Party is no longer a Rust Belt party. It's no longer uh, Scranton and, uh, and Ohio and uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Uh, it's becoming a Sun Belt party, and this is very much uh, symbolic of that, particularly when you're looking at a state like Georgia, that has now turned from a deep, deep uh, red state to a purple, if not light blue state. We see North Carolina bounce back and forth in the last several elections. That's becoming very much a gettable state. Uh, Florida still being in place. So it makes perfect sense to keep to start the race out uh, in an area that is going to be closer to the demographics of where we're going to decide the election. Say what you want about Iowa, but Iowa gives you no information about what uh, candidates will be able to to actually win electoral votes in the fall. And it's, they've almost become irrelevant in recent years. Uh, many candidates have started skipping over both uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. Rudy Giuliani famously did it. Uh, other candidates have done so. So this is more so the party coming to the realization of what has already been happening uh, de facto and are now putting this into practice. That Candidates have now learned you do not need to win Iowa. You do not need to win New Hampshire. You can start the race in South Carolina and still do just fine, uh, or you can uh, come in, you know, nearly last place in both Iowa and New Hampshire and come out just fine. And for that reason, it was important to do this. And also giving voice to a more diverse electoral set is always better for parties because the the candidates who tend to do great and many of those early states with the uh, candidates who got there early camped out, uh, went to the Iowa State Fair, etc. Uh, but uh, those candidates normally did very poorly in the uh, broader election, primarily because you're not going to have the same time to do that uh, six months of retail politics leading up to the rest of the primaries, leading up to the general election. So I think the party has done the right thing and hopefully they'll do more to modernize voting and reach out to more diverse groups of voters, and particularly young voters on college campuses, get them involved in um, picking candidates. Well, Attorney Daryl Jones, are you? Oh, yes. Attorney, I wanted to know if you, if you were there. I mean, you, uh, what, there is pushback. I mean, what do you think about this, and what do you think about the pushback? 
Well, you know, you know, Cynthia, I listened to all that uh, that Robert has said, and I'm certainly in agreement with regards to how it shapes uh, the campaign uh, nationally for someone to to you know to be in Iowa or New Hampshire, and, and certainly the the lack of diversity that exists in Iowa. What I find really interesting, though, and one of the points that uh, that that uh, that I really focused on was that as we head into uh, this primary season, South Carolina is is one of the surprise states where Joe Biden won, and so I think that what you're beginning to see is some of the power play that now goes in because you know we know that uh, that Congressman uh, Clyburn and as uh, as Janice so so eloquently put it that it was really a black woman that pushed Clyburn to get out in front and push Joe Biden and then after we have uh, the, the black woman and and and, and uh, Congressman uh, Clyburn that pushes Biden and then Biden surprisingly winning South Carolina we subsequently get uh, Jamie Ra- uh, Harrison who becomes the DNC chair. So there's this real strong focus on South Carolina, and it becomes almost part of a, a, a two-year strategy, if you're the sitting president, to put South Carolina first, one that has lifted you up, one that the DNC chair is, is behind you, lifting you up, so that you can begin to uh, certainly take care of the field of uh, any potential candidates that will be out there and give you a really strong role. So that's sort of what I see with them um, uh, lifting South Carolina to, to make them first. Uh, is it a positive thing uh, to do? Uh, I, I think uh, I agree with everyone else. I think strategically it's an, extra, uh, it's an extraordinarily positive thing to do to uh, to give President Biden, should he decide to run for another term, which I believe he will, that push that he needs to get started. So, you know, there's going to be pushback, right, from New Hampshire and Iowa because they're accustomed to being first. Uh, but by the same token, I think the rest of the country will say that South Carolina is more representational of the Democratic Party than either Iowa or New Hampshire. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, in my analysis, I, I think it's a brilliant move on behalf of the political strategists to push South Carolina and make them first. Yes, I mean, you know, let me say this is your homegirl, Hannah Parkett said, Speaking of marginalized voters, let's remember the black vote is not a monolith anywhere, even in South Carolina. You're absolutely right. But when, and you know, that having been said, when it comes to the Democratic primary, 60% of the Democratic vote is black. Now, I mean, goodness gracious, I think we're so accustomed to being in the back of us uh, that, you know, we are afraid of, we, sometimes we don't even understand that power you have to take. <laughs> and I mean, and this is the real thing. And you don't take it to be unfair. You take it to even things out. Yes, uh, Attorney Mathis. I just wanted to add one little coda to that. The makeup of this Democratic National Committee, that's who had to vote for this change. Mignon mm-hmm. Moore is the co-chair of the Rules Committee of the Democratic National Committee. The reason she is the co-chair of the Democratic National Committee's Rules Committee, the heart and soul of it, and I believe Leah Dowtry is also on the Rules Committee, and even at one point I was on the Rules Committee, Reverend Jesse Jackson appointed 15 or 20 black folk and very progressive folk to the Democratic National Committee in 1988, and they are still largely responsible for this move now. That's the difference that history makes. And that's why we have to be strategic and be willing to look into the future. Mm. Amen. You know what? I Sometimes I don't even uh, 
understand how the absolute game changer that Reverend's candidacy for, he completely changed American politics. But I'll remember the day, I'll never forget the day that he announced that he was running for the first time in November 3rd, 1983, which you remember, Attorney Mathis. And he said, as of this day, nothing will ever be the same. And nothing has been the same. Number one, you got not number one, you got black secret service agents in mass. You then saw black people covering national campaigns, which black reporters never got the national campaigns. Well, they threw all the black reporters on <laughs> on our campaign because they were like, yeah, it's not going to last anyway. It's not going to be anything. And that's the only campaign you remember from 84 and 88, quite frankly. And everything did change. And Reverend, when he got in there, he saw that politics, A, that the Republican and Democratic parties are private entities, um, and they are businesses, and they do business, and they were not giving with all the things that black people, all the votes that black people were giving to the party. They could never be vendors and do business with the party, let alone the rules. You had a winner-take-all system. He completely changed the process, and Frank Watson and Dr. Ron Walters, and on and on. And don't forget Dr. Gene Sendab and all these wonderful people, Laura Brown. Uh, so many people, so many people who completely changed history. And um, for the better. That was more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. Coming to you from WCPT820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I'm Santita Jackson. I want you to meet my morning shows on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel and the Santita Jackson and Friends Facebook page. Everybody meet us on over there. We're talking about the DNC changing the schedule. Uh, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee said, hey, uh, we need to put Nevada and and South Carolina first with these growing and solid black and Hispanic populations. Indeed, 60% of the Democratic vote during the primaries is black. Yeah, that's right. And then South Carolina has a rich, rich, rich history, and we're seeing the Hispanic population surge within the Democratic Party in Nevada. And um, why not even it up and make it fair? I'm hearing heart in my mind and in Nancy Wilson. Remember that song, Even It Up? Got to do that, everybody, in Chicago. We're going to have a high of 46 degrees today. Yes, above zero, mostly cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 35 degrees, partly cloudy in the NBA. LeBron James is 36 points away from breaking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 40-year-old record that we will never, ever forget. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and this record, he did it first by becoming the highest-scoring NBA player in history. But, of course, uh, LeBron James can do it this week. He can do it this weekend. We're pulling for him, and we always, always will honor Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Bulls, 128. The Spurs, 104. The Timberwolves will be playing the Nuggets tonight in the NHL. The Coyotes were triumphant over the Wild, 3-2. And the Ducks will be playing Chicago. It is Super Bowl week and it's an historic Super Bowl, everybody. 
Philly versus Kansas City. Who will, who will take home the prize? Well, either way, a black quarterback for the first time in history will take home the prize. That is to say, for the first time, we're going to have two black quarterbacks facing off um, against each other, Mahomes and Hurts. And everybody, think of Joe Gilliam. Think of all of these quarterbacks, who these black quarterbacks who were supremely talented, even the undervalued Doug Williams, who was one of the winningest and highest performing college quarterbacks in history played and grambling under coach, the, the legendary, iconic coach Eddie Robinson. When he entered the, the, uh, the, Den- the Denver Broncos-Washington uh, matchup in 1988, no one thought he had a prayer. They didn't even discuss him all week, even though he'd been one of the winningest NFL quarterbacks in history. In history. But after he threw those four... Uh, Oh, that's right. Those four uh, touchdown passes in that first quarter. He shut everybody up, and then he went to Disney World. I love it. <laughs> I love it, everybody. You know, we're talking about financial freedom, everybody. There is a coach and work program that David Hochberg and the team Hochberg are having. It's going to make you a lot of money, but you got to pay attention. If you, if you are selling your home, if you're purchasing a new home and you would like to save or make thousands of dollars, you need to call Team Hochberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, or go to 56-DAVID to get some details. They're offering everyone their perks at work benefit through the end of April, which can save you thousands of dollars the next time you buy or sell your home. This is how it works. When a Team Hochberg-affiliated realtor sells your home, they'll reduce their fee up to 1%. That could be thousands of dollars. In fact, it will be. When a Team Hochberg-affiliated realtor helps you to purchase a home, you will receive up to 1% of their commission as a closing cost credit. Again, thousands of dollars. Team Hochberg will credit their loan origination fee and their affiliated attorney will reduce their fee. Again, thousands of dollars. There's a couple who saved close to $9,000 using this Perks at Work program. This is how you can do it. Please call them at 855-56-DAVID or visit them at 56david.com. You cannot afford not to call them. You cannot afford to miss this opportunity. We have got, we're going to have Dr. Robert Starks. And um, we have attorney, uh, Robert Bertillo, attorney Daryl Jones, who will be on WOL this afternoon uh, at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, 11 o'clock in Chicago on, on Central Standard Time, and WOL with Barbara Arnwine. And we've got Kevin Lampy, who will be in Wisconsin with President Biden tomorrow with his wife, Kitty Kurth, helping to organize his visit there. And, of course, at the bottom of the hour, we will be talking with John Nichols from Iceland, everybody. He's going to be talking about the State of the Union address. But before you go, Attorney, uh, Attorney Janice Mathis, Executive Director of the National Council of Negro Women, uh, before you go, Native South Carolinian, this is a good idea to to switch uh, the first in the nation primary to South Carolina and to Nevada. Uh, or what do you think of it? I think it is absolutely the right move at the right time. The other thing that the president urged and that the party is doing is moving away from caucus states because they are less democratic, less inclusive, moving toward those states where 
they hold primary elections as opposed to primary caucuses. Uh, no one get too deep in the weeds, but you know, this to me is a keep hope alive moment. You know, in this era with Tyree Nichols and racist plots against the um, against Baltimore's uh, power grid, it's easy to get disillusioned and and to be discouraged. But this is one of those moments that we should say to to each other and to all voters, and particularly uh, my black male voters. Black votes matter. Black voters matter. Your votes matter. Listen to the State of the Union tonight. There's going to be a message in there for you, I, I believe. Change is possible. The dream lives, and hope will never die. So, Santina, I want to thank you for being part of that process of keeping hope alive, as your dad always talked about. It's up to our generation now to move the ball even further forward. And this is the way we do it. And look, girl, I didn't know you were such a football fan. We got to get together. Oh, no, wait a minute. Should have known. Ron Brown's brother and I had a had a football party in my apartment in D.C. Chip Brown. Oh my goodness! I had, you know what? When when they would not recognize Doug Williams, I had everybody get on the phone and call the network. I said, "That's how you do this." Because I mean, he threw these four touchdown passes and. Quarterback was supposed to be for the smart guys. It wasn't John Elway. Black men weren't athletic. You couldn't be quarterback because you couldn't learn the playbook. You couldn't be quarterback because the team wouldn't respect you. This whole thing about quarterbacking is deeper than just athletics. It's really about leadership. That's absolutely. I mean, and the reason you have uh, Tom Brady walking off the field is because the agreement was not to touch him. Girl, you know, I had to learn football. My father made me learn it. My mother said, what are you going to do, put cleats on her? What? (laughs) She wanted me to be able to talk intelligently. He said, half the world is male. I need you to know sports. You're going to sit here, sweetie, and you're going to learn all of this. But so, I mean, he even took me to the Super Bowl. So there we go. Not all the time, because that was, that was the endeavor that he had with my brothers. But, you know, he would take me. And that was good, because I had crushes on some of He took me a couple of times, too. Oh, yeah. He took me a couple of times, too. I think we went to Miami and maybe one other. But, yeah, yeah. a lot of lessons in that. So we, uh, wherever you are Sunday night, we'll have to connect. Oh, girl, I'm going to call you. Because I'm going to be watching. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, well, I'm going to be watching. Love you, Attorney uh, Janice Mathis. National Council of Negro Women. Everybody join. Join. Please. Join. They deserve your support and they need it. They need it. Thank you so much. I love you. I love you. Let me do a round robin on everybody. We're about to get Dr. Bob Sarks up. But Kevin Lampy, there is pushback. Um, against the, the idea of switching this primary. And, you know, I can't help but um, see at least, you know, race in some of this at the very least. Okay? It just, you know, there's a resistance always to change. I mean, which is just human nature, I think. But the other piece is some people saying, you know, I think, you know, why should we change this? And I'm like, wait a minute, you honor these small towns that would that could be overlooked, right? But the thing is, you need to win South Carolina if you want to be the Democratic nominee, Kevin Lampy. So, where do you see this going? Do you think this is going to go through? Let me change the institute. No, I, 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 
the change is needed. It's going to happen, and it's going to be a difficult time for people in New Hampshire and Iowa. Remember, there is a whole industry that is set up in those states to work on presidential politics. There is people that have made higher careers of working in those states as the experts in those states. Um, You look at the boom to the the, the hotel and transportation and and food industries that happens when these presidential campaigns focus all their attention in New Hampshire and in in Iowa. Um, And also, but this is going to Something else that's going to fundamentally happen, and this is to me as a, as a political operative who's worked on presidential primary campaigns, the style of campaigning is going to change. In New Hampshire, it was retail politics. People would say, you know, who are you going to vote for? He says, well, I don't know. I've only met candidates three times myself. I hope to meet them four times before I make a decision. That state was so small that they could be doing retail politics. And then the caucus system is complicated and is ground organizing intensive. You've got to be have a good field organizing team. You've got to make sure that people show up. You have to make sure that people are participating. You know, literally down to, you know, they know exactly who's going to be at that caucus and how they're going to vote. So you're going to change it's going to change the dynamic which is going to be better for the Democrats because as we as we continue to do this demographic shift and a realization of who our demographics are in the Democratic Party, we now are going to be appealing to them more. And, and something else I want to throw in here, Santina, is I think this will teach Democrats that the African, the, the, the black vote and the Latino vote are not monolithic. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the next big step forward in electoral politics is as the Democratic Party understands that each of those groups, which we tend to put them all together in one big group, there's differences within those groups, and we need to understand how to appeal to all the different sections of those two very important constituencies for the Democratic Party. Mm, you know what? You're absolutely right, because we're seeing more black people ran under the Republican banner um, in the last election cycle in the midterms than ever before. And we're see, and you're seeing uh, you're seeing uh, the Hispanic community do the same thing. I mean, it's just people people. And you know, your your party reflects your culture more than anything, really. And so you know, but then people are also more nuanced and more mixed in their political beliefs. So that's something. Thank you for bringing up that point, Robert Patillo. What of the what of the pushback? What what do you make of of this shift? Well, a lot of people, as we just said, a lot of people have made their entire careers based on the status quo. Uh, there's an entire uh, political science school of thought based on how exactly you win the Iowa uh, caucuses and selling candidates on the idea that you have to get to Iowa first. You have to camp out there. You need to set up a headquarters there, etc. And that needs to be the catapult for you going forward, even though that hasn't been the, uh, the truth on the ground for decades now. Uh, and uh, another thing that I think that is important about moving this primary to South Carolina is uh, understanding how to campaign to conservative Democrats. I think that often uh, in New York and in Washington, D.C. and in L.A., where the, these major think tanks are at and major political action committees are at, um, they're writing Democratic polit- uh, policies and they're donating large amounts of money to Democratic campaigns. They forget that there are a lot of Southern conservative Democrats 
who vote for the Republican Party or who vote for the Democratic Party um, primarily because the Republican Party is very, very racist uh, or uh, because of uh, longstanding social issues like Social Security and Medicare, etc. But when you start bringing in a lot of more of the uh, progressive uh, uh, social issues, you tend to alienate them. I think in general elections, often Democrats alienate a portion of their of people who would vote for them because they never had to actually talk to people uh, who may agree with you on 52% of things, but not on 100% of things. You have to get those 52% voters to vote for you also. I think that's going to be a benefit to having to actually campaign to conservative Democrats in the South, understanding that people can disagree with you without being MAGAs, and you have to know how to talk to them. Mm. Attorney Jones, before we bring on Dr. Bob Stark. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, when we look at it really quickly, just by the numbers, uh, you know, in Iowa, we have, what, maybe 3% uh, black population that's there. New Hampshire, we have, what, 2% black population that's there. Now, if we look at Nevada, we're looking at like 9% of the black population, 28% of the Latino population in Nevada. In South Carolina, we're way up to 26% of the black population uh, that, that makes up uh, uh, the, the state of South Carolina. So what the shift will do is that it will make it more inclusive. They'll have a stronger voice for that big umbrella that the Democratic Party uh, loves to say that they have. So I, I think it's a positive move to uh, to, uh, to South Carolina to be the first or Nevada to be the first, whichever it was, because it'll be a truer representation of the population, of the people that make up our country. So, you know, that, that's as I see it. It's going to shift, as Robert has just said, it's going to shift the, the, the tactics and the strategies of the candidates. And we're going to have a more robust candidate out of the Democratic Party that comes as a result of it. That's, as I, that's, how, that's how I see it, Cynthia. Well, I, mean, I hear you. I think I think we'll strengthen the party, uh, Dr. Starks, but there is still pushback against uh, making this switch as if we always had the first in the nation uh, primary in New Hampshire and Iowa. Look, human nature resists change. I get that. But some of this is racial and some of this is reacting to a new American reality. America was never a white nation, y'all. You we're on indigenous land. Then you brought African people people here. Game over. <laughs> That's it. It's all the rainbow. If you don't want to recognize that, shame on you. But that is that has always been the case. Always. <laughs> Doctor Starks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I just want to make sure that I absolutely agree. I let you know that I agree with what. Uh, what has been said, that, in fact, if you have a primary, presidential primary in uh, South Carolina and in Nevada, you get a better reflection of the, the diversity of, of the American population. And I'd like to ask your experts one question, and that is, to what extent does a primary uh, shape the rest of the campaign uh, especially early uh, primaries shape the the, the rest of the, the presidential campaigns. I will. I will. I will jump this in is, here. This Dr. is Professor Starks. You know, he's he's always questioning us, testing us. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I'm not in class, but okay. go on. <laughs> All right. School's in, everybody. Go on and answer. I don't know who raised your hand, but go on and answer. All right, uh, Dr. Starks, I would be teacher's pet here. Um, so <laughs> it, it completely changes. It completely changes the dynamic of how presidential campaigns will be run. When exactly. you were focused just on New Hampshire and just on Iowa, you were dealing with mm-hmm. a certain type of voter. You were dealing with a certain type of retail politics in New Hampshire, and then with a caucus organizing model in Iowa. This is going to make Democratic campaigns run much more efficiently in many more states because those early days are when you're testing your campaign organization. When you were learning, it's like, you know, it's like introducing a new product. It's like putting something out there, opening a new store, providing a new service. You need to learn and understand how you deliver that to the people. And by changing this now, that to when we're in, we're in South Carolina and Nevada first, we're going to have to run larger state operations. We're going to have mm-hmm. to be much more organized, and we're going to have much better candidates because candidates will be strengthened by the challenges presented by having a primary start, a primary season start in South Carolina, then move to Nevada as opposed to going from New Hampshire to Iowa. And I also think you would have to have a a much uh, more diverse staff working in those states as opposed to the states of uh, New Hampshire, et cetera. Do you agree? Yes, I agree absolutely. In fact, I know know many, many a sharp young black operative from Chicago has uh, headed down to South Carolina or making careers there in South Carolinian politics. So um, it is definitely making a shift. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Santita, I think this will uh, force the Republican Party to change its tune to some extent if they expect to have support outside of that MAGA group in the Republican Party. Would you agree? Well, you know, you, but you know, I, you know, let me tell you, I remember the black, young black Republicans for Jesse Jackson in 84 and 88. Mm-hmm. And Armstrong yes. Williams was the head of that. Reverend Running changed the political options of black people, of Hispanic people, of Asian people, of the Arab community, quite frankly, of the Jewish community, because his campaign reshaped the debate on or the discussion on the Middle East. He said, you got to have a balanced policy. That I mean, just everything. Everything. South Africa. This can, South Africa. I mean, you put that at the center. Remember, uh, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist, according to our State Department, when he was the president of the nation. So for Reverend to go on television advocating for Nelson Mandela and Walter Sassoon in ANC was like blasphemy. Mm-hmm. You didn't even, you know, I mean, so, you know, this is being considered blasphemous, but it's not. You know, I want you all to stay with me on the other side and just give me a few more comments before we bring on John Nichols, who's going to be talking about the State of the Union. John is in Iceland this morning. We are going to be talking with him. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, but he said, you know, I'm. I'm willing to I'm willing to be on the phone with you and talk about the State of the Union because, quite frankly, this is coming as President Biden, Robert Petillo, is looking at. Many people are saying that tonight will be the kickoff for the 2024 campaign. That'll be like he's going to tout his accomplishments, which are many, and 
he's wanting to get everybody ginned up for his campaign announcement. So what do you think? Because we're already in 2023, everybody. By the end of the year, everybody's in. So I want you all to call me at 773-763-9278 and keep those comments coming in. Uh, and, of course, school's in session with Dr. Bob Stark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And still on Kevin Lampy. I mean, and the teacher's pet is Kevin Lampy. I'll never forget that. Not leave that down, Kevin. Love you, Kevin. Let me, my pleasure, let me share a little bit of trivia about the New Hampshire primary. Oh, well. Besides, stay right there. I don't want you to get that. I got a, I got a hard out on this break, but stay right there. Dr. Morton, Mr. Anthony, Jack, and Sean, just be This is the Santita Jackson Show. We're getting so much wonderful information from Kevin Lampy and Dr. Robert Starks, Professor Robert Starks, who's been questioning the whole panel, Attorney Daryl Jones, and uh, the mysteriously quiet Robert, Attorney Robert Cotillo. But, of course, we've got John Nichols on with us from Iceland. Oh, my gosh. And he is going to talk to us about the State of the Union. But, you know, before we, before we pivot to you, John, we've been talking about the South Carolina primary. You know I've got to get comments from you about that. And, and the Nevada primary. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, uh, of course, Dr. Starks is still here. Attorney Daryl Jones will be on at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time with Attorney Robert Arnwine on WOL, WOL Radio out of Washington, D.C. Um, and, of course, Attorney Robert Petillo, who's on WAOK, the iconic Atlanta radio station, from 1 to 4 every Sunday. And, of course, he'll be coming to different markets. He's such a brilliant broadcaster. Um, and, of course, Kevin Lampy, who is headed to Wisconsin because after the State of the Union, that is where President Biden is heading. And, of course, he and his wife, uh, Kitty Kirk, who are two of the top political consultants in the world, you can't run for anything locally, statewide, regionally or nationally without their input. They are absolutely brilliant at what they do. Um uh, you know, a couple of things. Kevin, you were offering us some information about these photojournalists. We forget that camera people are journalists, and you said that they do something very interesting in New Hampshire. Yeah, there is there is a spreadsheet that is being kept by the camera people in New Hampshire of which candidates will, will approach the photojournalists and shake their hand and say hello. It is retail politics the most important. It's important for two things. One, as, you know, if they're a photojournalist, they decide how the shot's going to look, you know, things are going to look on TV. So you, you need to respect their journalistic uh, uh, integrity, their journalistic credentials as much as you do the reporters. And it also shows who's a good person. And just, you know, sometimes, as my mom taught me, it's, you know, it's nice to be nice. And it's important to say hello and, and engage with people. Wow, I said that Reverend Clay Evans, it's nice to be nice. Um, Rob, you know, Attorney Jones, very quickly, are you surprised by that? Attorney Jones. Oh, I think he might have left. Attorney Patillo, are you surprised by that factoid? 
Well, not, not at all, because the way that Iowa in particular used to work is um, it, it was a, it's an antiquated rubric that only could operate in the t- period of time prior to social media. Because back then, we only really had three stations. It was easy for the news media, media to kind of key in on who's in Iowa. That's what makes the nightly news. That's who stories are going to be written about. Uh, now, with uh, Internet followers and Twitter followings and uh, viral videos, etc., Candidates don't really need the traditional mainstream media to launch their campaigns the same way that they used to. So because of that, Iowa and um, New Hampshire have been decreasing in importance probably since Howard Dean. And I think this is just a logical conclusion to that period of our political lives. You know, Dr. Stark, before we pivot to the man in Iceland, (laughs) I mean... I mean, what what is our takeaway about this about this shift? Because this is a big shift, you know. And a lot, I mean, Republicans and Democrats in New Hampshire, at least, are saying, you know what, we will not. We're gonna we'll change the date before we are not first in the nation. I'm like, whoa, okay, so you're not playing by the rules. Well, it is clear that the putting the uh, the, the first. Uh, primaries in uh, South Carolina and Nevada will definitely influence the manner in which the Republicans will proceed in in their primaries, especially if you look at North Carolina. Now, remember, uh, Haley, Ms. Haley, who was the former governor of the state of North Carolina, I mean, South Carolina, and uh, Scott, Senator Scott. And remember, she appointed Scott to that position. She helped him get to that position. So that will check that the Democratic primary will have a very big influence on the outcome of the Republican primary in that state. Believe me. Well, you know, I mean, that all of this, you know, I know we're going to talk about the State of the Union, John Nichols. I know that. But you, I can't let you not t- comment on on this development on the Democratic side. Nevada and South Carolina, first in the nation, as opposed to, I mean, and it's not that, it's not that uh, New Hampshire and Iowa are being pushed back. It's just some other people being moved forward, people who are really the backbone of the party. You cannot become the Democratic nominee without black people. It's not going to happen. You know, it's not. But I don't think that excludes anyone else, John. What what do you make of this? Well, look, the the scheduling of the calendar is a huge deal, Uh, not merely for political purposes, but for economic purposes. Uh, whatever state has the first primary or the first caucuses makes a fortune. The hotels are filled. I remember when uh, your dad's old advisor and my dear friend Steve Cobble and I used to go to Iowa every year, every four years for the Iowa caucuses. We'd go out to cover them and to comment on them. Even if Steve didn't have a candidate, he would come because he was just interested in it. And in recent years, it got harder and harder to find a hotel. Um, we, you know, you'd end up further and further from downtown Des Moines because um, they were packed with all the media, packed with all the campaigns. So there's a financial incentive for the states to have this. There is also an ego and a, uh, a reputation incentive for the states to have it. So, yeah, it matters. We shouldn't you know, downplay that. Uh, if some state goes ahead of others, the other ones are going to feel 
upset by that. They're going to feel bad about it. They may give it a hard time. You can't really worry about that. What you have to worry about is, do you have a primary schedule that is likely to identify a candidate who can win? I mean, the point of politics, let's be quite blunt, the point of politics is to get power. And the only way you get power is if you win. And so putting primaries and caucuses in particular states should be done with that in mind. And frankly, I'm not sure the Democrats always do that. Um, they or the Republicans, to be honest, they tend to respond to the demands of different states and things like that. I think going to South Carolina is fine. Although, to be honest, if I was going to go to the southeast, I would have gone to Georgia. And mm-hmm. going to Georgia mm-hmm. is because it's a battleground state <laughs> and it's a battleground state that is in transformation that has elected a black senator twice now uh, in a special election and regular election. And that has elected a Jewish senator. Um, both quite progressive members of the Senate. Uh, it is a state that in 2020 switched from having backed Trump in 2016 to backing Biden in 2020. So that's, you know, I, I think we could talk about that. But complaining about, say, South Carolina versus Iowa, well, that's ridiculous, you know, because I hate to say it, and it saddens me, <laughs> but Iowa doesn't look like a battleground state anymore. Um, Iowa was a battleground state for a long time. But in the last two cycles, it went pretty overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, and the Republicans have come to dominate it quite quite thoroughly. And so um, when we talk about where you put primaries and caucuses, again, my emphasis would be on where do you reach voters who are likely to define a candidate who is likely to win? And I do think that more emphasis should be put on battleground states, um, I'd love to see a primary, a very early primary in Georgia. Frankly, I'd love to see a very early primary in Michigan. And Michigan, an incredibly diverse state um, that has been a battleground state, went for Trump in 16, went for Biden in 2020, has seen a real rise of the Democrats with a multiracial, multiethnic uh, politics, putting a lot of emphasis on electing women. Um, I think Michigan would be a good place to go early as well. Mm. Well, now you need to talk to us about the State of the Union. What are we supposed to be looking out for tonight? Some people are saying that, you know, the president will tout his accomplishments. Some people are saying this is the kickoff to 2024, his re-election bid. <laughs> Starting with the State of the Union, what, should, what will we see? What should we be looking for, John? Well, don't look at the State of the Union. Look at what happens the next morning because that will tell you everything about it, right? You said some people are saying this is the start of his re-election bid. I don't think we have to say it. I think we know it, and I'll tell you why. The next morning, he's flying to Madison, Wisconsin. Why is he coming to Wisconsin, the ultimate battleground state? Right after his State of the Union, I think the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, all indications are that Joe Biden plans to run for re-election, and he will use the State of the Union address as – Every president in the past has in similar circumstances uh, as a way to lay the groundwork for that reelection run to begin to make his argument. There's, by the way, nothing wrong with that. That is an entirely appropriate use of the bully pulpit. Um, I, we all like to imagine that it's, you know, just noble and all about governance and things of that nature. The truth of the matter is it's, it's really always been a bit of theater to it. And so for Biden, the great challenge tonight is to do it in a way 
that that is effective. Now, we know he will dot the I's and cross the T's. We know he will do the basics well. There's a reason for that. He served 36 years in the Senate. He served eight years as vice president. He's now served more than two years as president. This guy has seen almost 50 State of the Union addresses in person. So the fact of the matter is, yeah, think about it, 50. Uh, So he knows his way around how to do it. He will do it with grace and dignity. He He won't, you know, flub something. But at the heart of it is, what's his message going to be? And his message has to be an interesting combination of praising himself, for lack of a better term, and praising his fellow Democrats and praising the Congress for what they accomplished in the first two years of his presidency. That's a big deal. You have to claim your victories. He also has to delineate between his agenda and that of the Republicans who now control the House, because they're clearly going to try and obstruct him. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, he has to lay out what he hopes to do in the next two years, as difficult as it will be, to look for some areas of bipartisan possibility, also to look for uh, at least some areas where he can set an agenda. And then secondly, to give that broader sense of where he wants to take the country. Um, it's, It's a lot to do, but it's certainly not an overwhelming task. And it is one that I think that Biden and his speechwriters have frankly put a lot of energy into over the last few weeks. Let me ask you this. I mean, because he's still getting a lot of pushback um, about running a game for various and sundry reasons. Um, why do you think he's still getting pushback? He's had significant accomplishments. Um mm-hmm. That having said, he's, you know, there's some things that, you know, no one is perfect, right? So I, I want to know what is what what is his workaround? I mean, because you've got Norman Solomon, a man for whom you and I have enormous respect. DontRunJoe.com. <laughs> I mean, and, they are, and these regrets are serious about that. And you can't ignore, you cannot ignore that. You have, you know, he's still underwater uh, uh, with his approval rating. I cannot understand why he can't move above that, but okay. Um, Because we forget that President Obama struggled too, you know, um, in this really polarized environment. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, what, what can he say tonight that might move the needle for him? Well, let's be clear about a couple of things that are important to understand. First and foremost, um, in their third years of their presidency, especially after a tough midterm election cycle, presidents usually, you know, have some speculation about whether they should run again or not. Um, it's kind of silly because presidents almost always run again. Uh, but it happens. It's, it's the nature of the game. Um, and for Joe Biden, it goes to a, another level because he is, you know, looking at a reality that if he is reelected, He'll be, you know, moving into his later 80s, mid to later 80s uh, at the end of the next term. And that would make him the oldest president in American history uh, by far. And so I think that that there is a bit of age bias there that a lot of people just simply think, yeah, he's pretty old. Maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, The other thing is that um, he is a president who is not. You know, he's not a flashy person. He doesn't try to provoke controversy. I mean, compare him to some past presidents, and it's, it's quite astounding. This is a managerial president. He goes in in the morning, works hard all day, and sometimes doesn't make a lot of news. Um, and so as a result, 
uh, I think Americans have sort of a looser connection to his presidency. They don't necessarily dislike it, but they're not passionate about it. That combination uh, has given him a rough situation with the polls. And even among Democrats, uh, there's no question that people are very open to the idea of having somebody else run. But the fact of the matter is that for Biden, you know, he has always been in this situation. Remember, in 2020, on Jan- we're talking in January 1st, 2020, um, the one guy you didn't think was going to become president of the United States was Joe Biden. Right. He was down in the polls. He ended up finishing, you know, like fourth or fifth in Iowa and in New Hampshire. I mean, he had some really bad finishes initially. He was saved by South Carolina. Um, and so the fact of the matter is uh, he regularly sort of underperforms in the polls and then surprises you by doing quite well. Same thing happened in the midterms. Polling uh, seemed to suggest the midterms are going to go very badly for Biden and the Democrats. They actually went quite well. So the end result is, I think that, you know, while some people talk about his age, sometimes with age comes wisdom and a certain measure of confidence. And for Biden, I think that, that he understands that sort of slow and steady wins the race. And what you'll see tonight, I think, will be a speech that is not lots of fireworks. It won't be the most dramatic speech in history, but it will be a solid speech with some soaring lines and some good messages. And the fact of the matter is uh, he will then follow it up with travel to battleground states, starting with Wisconsin. And I I think that people will begin to settle into the reality that he is very likely to be the Democratic nominee in 2024. That doesn't necessarily mean he won't face some kind of primary challenge, but the likelihood is that uh, for a variety of reasons, he has the advantage. And so his job tonight is really to solidify that advantage, um, to build it out. And frankly, to get people thinking about him as a candidate seeking a second term. How will you do that? I mean, as I, you know, as I was listening to you, you prompted this thought. I mean, he did well. We continue to say he did well in in the midterms, but he did what you had very, very. Uh, you had candidates about whom people were about whom people were, were quite passionate. I mean, Warnock. Um, yeah. I mean, the Warnock Herschel Walker race, shall I say, aroused a lot of passions. I mean, you can go around the country. So I don't know if it was about President Biden as much as it was that particular race and all of the issues attendant. Um, what can what can, what can he? I mean, be a speechwriter. I mean, because you are a speechwriter, you are a strategist, and you also deliver a heck of a speech yourself. Speech to last term, and I don't know which. <laughs> that having been said, what can he? You've done some stem winders, though. What can he say that will allay some of the doubts, that will mitigate some of this? Uh, you know, I mean, just because you're right, people are not passionate about him. They appreciate him, I think. I don't know if they appreciate him as much as they should, but it's just, it's. I don't know. It's just something that's not catching fire. If you want Joe, if you want Joe Biden to catch fire, you know, and really, you know, like shoot off the fireworks and, and, you know, have a dramatic moment, um, you're going to be waiting for a long time. It's not his style. Uh, His style is warm connection to people, taking the time to actually talk to someone. Um, Sometimes he'll make a mistake, uh, but, but there's always a sense that it's, he's well-intended 
Um, and so uh, he is, for lack of a better term, um, he is a little bit grandfatherly. Um, and, you know, after going through the pandemic and after all the other turbulence that we've had over the last, you know, several years, um, I'm not sure that isn't an appealing message. And so, again, what he needs to communicate is confidence, that he's on top of things, that he, he's got you know, not just a sense of where we're at, but where he wants to take us to do so well and effectively and to do so, you know, as himself. He can't make himself into something else, right? Mm-hmm. He can't make himself into a Donald Trump. He's not going to be that. Um, and I don't think people want him to be that. So no. going deeper into himself, going deeper into himself, I think, is the, is the winning strategy. And if I can just throw one other thing into the mix here, because I know we, we don't have a lot of time, um, I want to emphasize that if you want to see, um, you know, uh, perhaps a somewhat more dramatic and, and, uh, and important, not more important, but an important presentation uh, this evening, tune into the Working Families Party response by Delia Ramirez, the congresswoman from Chicago. Uh, she's a freshman in the House, brand new member, and yet um, she's been chosen to do a response. And my sense is that's going to be That'll give you a real flavor of sort of the progressive vision as regards where Democrats should go. This will not be a response that attacks Joe Biden, that criticizes him or something like that. Rather, it will be a response that, as best I can tell, encourages him to, you know, kind of go deeper on things like Build Back Better, the child tax credit, a host of other initiatives that are very, very popular uh, and that have been championed by progressives. So I think that in some senses tonight, um, you get that combination of Biden with his steady approach and then Delia Ramirez afterwards with a response that, that sort of maybe lights a little bit of the fire. Uh, that's not a bad combination, uh, frankly, and that, that does get to what you were talking about, about the 2022 midterms, where um, you had whatever strengths Biden brought to it, but then you also had the strengths of what this younger, new generation of Democrats are bringing to the party. Mm. And, you know, and I know that was an absolute calculation, and I think that they made the right decision. We love Congresswoman Ramirez on this show and in Chicago, and I think that the rest of the country will love her, too, when they see her, when they get a chance to see her. Uh, what should we, what do you think will be the big issues? I uh, know I have about three minutes left. What will be the big issues as you see it? Um, going into this, because we're already in 2024. John Nichols. I mean, yeah, we really are. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're here. Yeah. Look, look, we are effectively. You know, and, and that's maybe good, maybe bad. You know, the fact is, it's a kind of a permanent election cycle. It'd be great if we could actually govern a little bit in between, but it's just not the nature of the game, and we shouldn't deny it. Um, and so, you already see Republicans announcing their candidacies or preparing to do so, and so we shouldn't, you know, imagine that it isn't seen that way on the Democratic side as well. What are the issues? Look, um, I know people will talk about, you know, a lot of the headline issues of the moment, and they matter. You know, what's going on in Ukraine matters a great deal. The United States has a commitment there, and that's important. Uh, and uh, what's going on with the pandemic? That's, you know, it's still a reality, and there are still people dying, there's still people getting sick, and so that's important. Both those things have to be addressed. But at the heart of the matter is there's a sense I think I'm a part of an awfully lot of Americans are being economically overwhelmed, i.e. housing costs too much. 
Uh, transportation costs too much. It's not as bad. Gas prices have gone down some, but it's still a burden. Um, college costs way too much for families that have to send a kid to school. Uh, retirement is insecure. Uh, there are even Republican threats to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Uh, and so I think that, that addressing that economic insecurity, that sense um, that we just don't have the certainty uh, that we want as a, as a people. And if I would focus on one thing, it is the threats to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, because I think that's going to be a huge issue in 2024, bigger than most pundits expect at this point. You know, that a uh, single-payer universal program, I mean, improvements in the health care program behind I mean, we're still in the pandemic. I'm surprised at that. I mean, that's, we need to be calling these health insurance companies out. And that, what is the name of your latest book? Uh, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. And it is about what the, uh, largely about what the pharmaceutical companies and the very wealthy people did to profit during the pandemic, rather than to join in that shared sacrifice that the great mass of people, especially essential workers, uh, were engaged with. We only talked about it once, but I think that with all of the discussion about the hikes in uh, the cost of the uh, care for COVID-19 and and just the fact that the number one driver of bankruptcy in America is your health care costs, even with insurance. I'm getting wild through these bills myself, and it's like, maybe my age then. we got to talk about that, because somebody's profiting. It's just not you. It, anything left on the i got 30 seconds for you. From Iceland, John Nichols. I will tell you from Iceland uh, that uh, though the timing is different, I'll be watching the State of the Union tonight. Uh, and then I'm up here uh, writing about some politics and maybe about how we might even save the planet. And that's, that's important, too. Hopefully the climate comes up tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe, yes, yeah, saving the planet. That's, I don't know. I don't know, because we do need to have a world to govern. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, climate like climate change is a real thing, and they really do do a lot of great work there in Iceland. I love you, John Nichols. Safe travels, traveling grace and mercies to you. Pray home, everybody. Hurry home, John. But thank you for doing this. Thank you for making time for us while you are in Iceland today. I love you, everybody. God bless you, board operator. Thank you for a great show. And um, uh, Robert Patillo, can't wait to have you back. Attorney Jones, uh, Dr. Robert Starks holding class, Kevin Lampy, who has been the teacher's pet. I love you.